Topic of our Dhamma talk today is Dhamma Nupasana part 3. During the Dhamma talk on Dhamma, on Dhamma Nupasana part 1, we spoke of a mindful contemplation of the hindrances and the Buddha mentions five instructions in this regard, namely to note the presence, the absence of a hindrance, and then to know if a hindrance is arising, to know the conditions that lead to its arising, and then if it's present, to know the conditions that lead to its um, abandoning and uh, or removal, and certainly uh, then finally, when a uh, hindrance has been abandoned, then to uh, know uh, the conditions that lead to its total uh, removal or total abandonment, and then we during the second. Yeah, Dhamma talk on Dhammanupasana Satipatthana, we spoke of a mindful contemplation of yeah, the aggregates and yeah, so briefly yeah, mentioned uh, about uh, yeah, the aggregate of materiality, briefly mentioned yeah, the aggregate of fitness feelings, and yeah, yeah, then a lot of emphasis was certainly given to a mindful contemplation of the aggregate of perception, sanyakanda in the Pali scriptural language. What remains uh, to be covered today is the mindful contemplation of the aggregate of volitional formations as well as the aggregate of consciousness. Now, the instructions certainly that certainly the Buddha has certainly given you know, with regard you know, to mindful contemplation of, of volitional you know, formations you know, are as certainly follows, and you find them in the Satipatthana Sutta. One knows such are volitions or volitional formations, such their arising, such their passing away. And certainly, so one knows such are volitions or volitional formations. Now, again, the word such indicates that one knows the nature of those volitions or volitional formations. And certainly, then the second and third instruction is obvious. One knows certainly the genesis of evolution, and one also knows its passing away, its disintegration, dissolution. Now, so. The texts speak of volitions, or else volitional formations. So volitions are involved. Another word for this would be intentions. And the instigating force 
which prompts the mind and the mental factors to be always together on whatever predominant object arises is none other than volition, the mental factor of volition in the Pani scriptural language known as Satna Chetana. And when one moment of certain consciousness arises, then it will be accompanied by at least a group of seven mental factors, the so-called universals. And one of those is Satna Chetana. And so then this combined group of one moment of consciousness plus a minimum seven universal mental factors, this, in this group it is consciousness, citta in the Pali scripture language, that is referred to as the president or illustrated compared to a president of, let's say, a big corporation. And then it is the mental factor of volition, chetana, which then is compared to the secretary, the main, the chief secretary of that particular corporation. And so it is certainly that chief secretary who will be very busy coordinating all the different departments so that they all work on one and the same topic or one and the same project. This mental factor of Chetana or volition has also been compared to a battle or a commander of a big army who then gives orders during a battle or in a battlefield. So this volition then is nothing other than the ethical, ethical action. And this action can be either wholesome, unwholesome, or indeterminate. Volition has been referred to as the maker or the true doer of actions. When a volition is strong, then the action will also be strong and there will be a corresponding result. When the volition or intention is weak, then the action will also be weak and the result accordingly. Now, this mental factor of volition plays an important role 
and uh, it's helpful to know its certain uh, definition as certain proposed by you know, the Visuddhi Magga, the path of purification. So mm, it is that mental factor you know, that uh, uh, is concerned with the um, implementation of a particular you know, goal. And its characteristic is the state of willing. Its function is to accumulate certain, namely, action or gamma, and certain, its manifestation is as coordination. And certainly, its proximate cause is certainly the associated certain states. Now, when we speak of certain volitional formations, then there's an element of volition in there, and then there's also the element of formations there. Now, the term formation carries a certain significance, a certain meaning, namely that it forms and also is formed. And so, when a volition arises, an intention arises, then this has a tendency to form a situation, to form a certain object, or even to form in the mind. And so, if, for instance, the commander of an army in a battlefield um, then orders certainly the entire army to move ahead, so this then will form the army and will give shape to it, and then in unison the army will move ahead. Likewise, if Futner, that chief secretary of Futner, some corporation, decides or has the intention to, let's say, purchase another expensive manufacturing equipment, well, then X number of departments will be involved in materializing this decision. Now, the third volume of the Majjhima Nikaya, in its certain section number seven, then clarifies or explains what is meant by the aggregate of meant of volitional formations, and it says. Any kind of formations, whatever, whether past, future, or present, 
internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the formation's aggregate. So this Sapnya then corresponds very much to the definition for the aggregate of perceptions, aggregate of feelings, and bodily formations. Now, the aggregate of volitional formations, Sankara Kanda, in the Pani scriptural language, is dependent on the mental factor of contact, Fasa, in the Pani scriptural language. And Fasa is the coming together of three things, namely, let's say, just as an example, a visible object and certainly then the physical eye, the meeting of those two produces the seeing consciousness. So those are three together you know, then make up what is known as you know, contact or nefasa in the Pali scriptural language. Now the Aggregates of feeling and perception, likewise, are dependent on contact. So, when no contact is there, is not taking place, then neither a feeling will arise, nor will there be a perception, nor will there be any volitional formation arising. Now, the discourses clarify that in the case of feeling, such contact is related to the sense doors, while as in the case of the aggregate of sankharas, yes, of volitional formations, its uh, um, sankharas and perceptions, they are related to sense objects. So the six certain sense objects, visible forms, sounds, and certain then smells, and certain, uh, taste, various certain, uh, taste experiences, and uh, tactile experiences, and mental uh, experiences. So, when it comes to the aggregate of volitional formations, they then arise in relation to these six types of sense objects. So, in other words, the aggregate of Sankaras consists of that which reacts to experience. So to give you a further example, until recently it was certainly getting very warm, and certainly then this morning we had a substantial thunderstorm, and certainly with this then the temperatures dropped, and as a result of this, most of us will probably have experienced a volition and intention to put on warmer clothing. 
and that satya then forms uh, things. It satya gives satya things a new, uh, a new shape. Now, those uh, volitional formations, the texts satya are uh, saying, are just like all other formations, all other phenomena, are subject to the three universal characteristics, namely impermanence and then unsatisfactoriness. And Satya then also they are not to be identified with a self. Now, the fact that Satna volitions Satna are impermanent might become obvious when we start paying close attention to them in our meditation practice. So, we might Satna then find that a volition to in the walking meditation, when we reach the end of the path, evolution arises to then stop walking. And then that volition may occur several times and lasts for a little bit and then eventually it disappears. But it might also happen that there is a situation where we have to react certainly quickly and such as maybe if we're just about to drop something, then to hold on. Uh, more firmly to the object. So that then requires, or or in that context, um, a volition, we might notice a volition quickly arising and then the next moment uh, disappearing. Now it might further happen that suddenly we find ourselves in the dining hall, we filled suddenly the plate with food, then we move to the table, we put on the plate there, the cutlery, sit down, and we sit in front of the food. We sit there for a minute, for two minutes, and suddenly for three minutes, mindful of intentions. Now, um, Obviously, the sensation of hunger might arise in the abdomen, and then sooner or later, a volition to finally start eating might arise. And so so then you can observe that really clearly. But it might also happen that Satna may be in a different Satna situation with your practice being more developed, Satna having matured Satna further. You are in front of, you're from the hallway, you're walking towards your room. You're right in front of the door to your room. Obviously, 
um, the then and then there is the intention to open the door. But since your practice is uh, has matured further, and certainly you are lately experiencing formations mostly as ending, ending, ending then it might happen that that volition or intention to open the door and to enter into the room does what? It passes away. It passes away and suddenly then we won't open the door. One will not. And suddenly then as one is standing there, sooner or later one might suddenly you know, then think, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's already two minutes that I'm standing in front of this rather solid door. And so then finally, uh, another intention is there. Um, mindfulness happens to be really strong. And suddenly, so unfortunately, this intention also uh, passes away right away. So with this, then one finds oneself standing still longer in front of that same door. Now, gradually, the situation is becoming uncomfortable. One might think, "Well, what about the other meditators? They might wonder what I'm doing here." And <laughs> and suddenly, then a much stronger and then there's a much stronger intention intention to open the door and enter into the room now this time around mindfulness is a little bit weaker and certainly so even though there's mindfulness of this intention it's not certainly disappearing right away and one barely manages to open the door and enter into one's room. So this kind of thing might happen on occasion. And if something like this happens, then it gives you a good certain, or you know, this can be taken as a really you know, very practical you know, teaching in terms of you know, the impermanence of, you know, of volition. Now, the Udana, which is a smaller collection of rather short certain discourses, gives a really nice illustration or a case of, or a case of relating to, to volition. Namely, there's mention of the lay follower, Sona, and said he had the volition, the intention to go forth. So, in other words, to become a bhikkhu, to go to leave the life of a householder and to begin the life, the life of a home, homeless one. And so. Then he approached the elder Mahakachana and Satna told him about his intention to become a bhikkhu. And elder Mahakachana was well aware of the difficulties of the monastic life and Satna thus, maybe also as a way of testing Nyasona, then told him, listen, monastic life is what? Easy or difficult? 
can be quite difficult at times. And suddenly, so he told him about this, and suddenly then, with this, Sona's volition to go forth then diminished and disappeared. And suddenly, so the situation did not change, he just remained a lay follower. However, at a later point, a stronger volition to go forth arose, and this one was powerful enough then to override alternate obstacles, and finally Sona did go forth and become um, a monastic. So the reference here is to Udana 57. Now, any kind of physical action or verbal action is uh, or depends on mm, on a volition, namely a mental volition. Hence, those two, a mental volition and a physical or verbal action, or even mental uh, action to be more uh, uh, concise, those certainly then can be uh, said to be um, of the same nature. They're identical. So, when we speak of an action, action X, Y, Z, then it necessitates that certain mental volition must have been there earlier on. Now, when it comes to these or to mental observing, working with volitional formations. In our meditation practice, one example with regard to the impermanence, or several examples with regard to their impermanent nature, was were given already. And so, There, in the course of our meditation practice, there may be occasions here and there when a volition is really predominant, and then this gives us a good opportunity to observe it. And actually, there's there are lots and lots of volitions occurring in the course of a day. Since every consciousness, every moment of consciousness that arises is accompanied by the seven universal factors and thereby accompanied by the mental factor of volition or intention, so these certain volitions, these intentions, they occur basically all the time. 
Now, whether we notice them or not, that will depend on the quality of our mindfulness and sapna will also depend on uh, well the sharpness of the mind. Now, being mindful of intentions or volitions gives at least the potential or, or gives us the opportunity to decide whether to act on a certain volition or not. So, to give oneself a few moments for careful reflection whether the action planned is beneficial or not, suitable or not. If it's both beneficial and suitable, then one should go ahead and act on the volition, otherwise not. Now, having to coordinate all the time, having to you know, respond certainly to external, external as well as internal objects all the time, and then coordinate this can be quite certainly exhausting. And so this plus the fact that certain intentions, volitions uh, undergo changes, these two aspects certainly then um, help, or, or these two aspects then make it clear that certain volitions in the end, ultimately speaking, are unsatisfactory, namely uh, dukkha. Now, these intentions arise not necessarily because we want something, but because of certain conditions that suddenly precede an intention. Now, upon carefully contemplating intentions again and again, one then comes to see their true nature and eventually the mind will turn away, at least will want to turn away from them and Satna then ultimately in the experience of Satna Nibbana there's no volitions occurring whatsoever and it is the absence of footnote you know, those you know, volitions as well as certain other condition you know, uh, mental states formations that is certainly so peaceful now maybe you know, this much you know, with certain you know, regard to a contemplation of footnote you know, the aggregate of uh, volitional you know, formations the last aggregate certainly you know, that's uh, that makes up what we refer to as a human 
being or as an individual, as an entity, as a self, is the aggregate of consciousness. In this regard, the Buddha gives the following instructions as are recorded in the Satipatthana Sutta, namely, one knows such is consciousness, such its arising, such its passing away. Now, the Pali term for consciousness is vijnana. The Pali term for aggregate is kanda. So when we combine those two, it becomes vijnana kanda, the aggregate of consciousness. Now, just for clarification in terms of usage, when we speak of a being, an individual, consisting of two major categories, namely of mind and matter, nama in the Pali scriptural language, and rupa meaning materiality, then Nama refers to the entirety of mental um, mental object or, or um, those of things that make up the mind, namely feelings and perceptions, then the volitional formations plus consciousness. However, in the context of the five aggregates, consciousness itself is specifically referred to as vijnana. And this term does not include feelings, does not include perceptions and volitional formations. Now, vijnana then, simply put, can be defined as being conscious of something. And this being conscious of something, venerable, or side Ujjanaka Bhivamsa, the founder and long-term Sayada in charge of Fatna, the Maganayan study monastery in Amarapura, Burma. He describes it as follows That which is conscious of object of an object is mind or consciousness. We are conscious of objects all the time. Consciousness does not mean comprehension by knowledge or by wisdom. So in other words, consciousness is not the same thing as uh, uh, intuitive wisdom or knowledge or understanding or insight. So knowledge, wisdom, insight, those are all the same thing, namely uh, uh, knowledge. So consciousness means the ability just the very simple uh, 
ability to take in objects through the sense organs, and that is certain all. So it's just this bare being conscious of objects and as for the others, namely feelings, perceptions and volitional formations, well, they contribute more specific, more specific functions. And so, So the ethical and karmic character of consciousness and its greater or lesser degree of intensity and clarity are mostly determined by the volitional, by mental formations associated with it. Now, the Buddha defines consciousness as follows. He says, as is given in the second volume of the Majima, first volume of the Majima Nikaya, in section 292, consciousness, consciousness is said, friend, with reference to what? Uh, with reference to what is consciousness said? It is conscious, it is conscious, friend. That is why consciousness is said. What does it, what is it conscious of? It is conscious, this is pleasant, it is conscious, this is painful, this is neither painful nor pleasant. Now, when it comes to you know, the aggregate of certain consciousness, then whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is called the consciousness aggregate. So early on we said certainly that contact or then certain feelings, perceptions and volitional formations depend on contact. But in the case of consciousness this is different. Consciousness depends on mentality as well as certain materiality, nama, rupa, in the Pali, the scriptural language. Now, just like with the other characteristics, this consciousness is said to be 
impermanent, unsatisfactory and uh, uh, not identical with a self. No. With no mindfulness practice or very little, we may think or we may hold that consciousness is something permanent, like a permanent flow. But upon closer observation at times, we might clearly see the dissolution of a moment of consciousness. Or at other times, we might certainly clearly see the arising of a moment of certain consciousness, maybe in association with certain of those seven universal factors. With that, then, it becomes, at least we get a glimpse of a glimpse of an understanding that consciousness is certainly not certainly permanent, but rather impermanent. Now, to see this is not so easy. The reason for this is that among the five aggregates, objects that belong to the materiality aggregate are by far coarser than objects uh, or those certain things certain um, or consciousness that belongs to the consciousness aggregate so consciousness is extremely refined and certainly therefore very difficult to see or to uh, understand now this consciousness again you know, depends on conditions, namely an earlier arising of a, a different kind of consciousness, and that one then again you know, you know, uh, requires set yet certain the arising of a different type of consciousness, and certain so on and so forth, and other you know, factors will also you know, play uh, a role. Consciousness itself will be changed from moment to moment to moment. So there's ever new influences on consciousness that then differentiate one moment of consciousness from the next. Now, there is a passage in, or two, two sections in the first volume of the Majjhima Nikaya that help to clarify the relationship between wisdom and consciousness, namely whether those two are joined or not joined. And so, a section 292 of the first volume says, Wisdom and consciousness, friend, these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. 
For what one wisely understands, that one is conscious of. And what one is conscious of, that one wisely understands. And then the next section explains the difference between wisdom and consciousness is these states uh, these states that are conjoined uh, these states are conjoined not disjoined namely wisdom is to be developed uh, sorry, the difference is uh, that wisdom is to be developed and consciousness is to be fully understood so wisdom here mm, then refers to the Noble Eightfold Path Factor of Right View and this needs to be developed whereas certainly in the case of consciousness this has to be fully understood namely as being impermanent, unsatisfactory and not identical with self. So at times in our meditation practice, we might get a little bit of an understanding of how consciousness works or to somewhat understand its nature. But certainly it does take patience. Now, with regard to those five aggregates in general and the contemplation of them. It can be said that the contemplation of the aggregates leads to a detachment from them and also to dispassion. And that then paves the way for a direct realization of the Dhamma. Now, not only this, but um, oftentimes human beings have much attachment you know, to, um, uh, to what they call a self or you know, being individual man you know, woman. And so mindful contemplation of you know, these five aggregates you know, then um, helps you know, to... Um, break this attachment or at least to weaken it to some extent. The result of this then will be less worries about this so-called being. Now, each and every of these five aggregates is subject to impermanence, is subject to unsatisfactoriness, and cannot be identified with a self. And so the illustrations that the Buddha used are as follows. And the first three I've 
given already, namely the illustration for material. The aggregate third material form is that of an insubstantial nature of a lump of foam carried away on uh, or carried away by a river you know, when it comes to you know, the feelings of the feeling aggregate they are compared to bubbles that form on the surface of water during you know, during you know, rain and those bubbles they form and obviously they pop now in terms of perception, you know, this gets compared to the illusory nature of a mirage, and you know, then as for the mental volitions, they are essenceless, and you know, thus like a plantain tree, because it doesn't have heartwood, it doesn't have a, a solid core. And you know, the comparison for you know, consciousness is uh, to the deceptive performance of a magician. Now, during our uh, intensive mindfulness practice, we might further, sooner or later, especially when the practice uh, gets really uh, deep, we might sooner or later come to the understanding that intuitive wisdom and all the different formations that arise in the course of our intensive meditation, that they do not suddenly arise in a haphazard manner, but rather in a pretty structured manner. And one way of explaining this one framework is or comes simply in the form of the five aggregates. So it is not uncommon that during any particular insight knowledge, at first a retreatant finds herself or himself observing, for the most part, bodily formations. So rupa kanda. Rupa kanda, the aggregate of materiality, is in the foreground. Then, with a, with a little bit of maturing, it might happen that for a while one experiences mostly feelings. Not that certain material formations don't arise anymore, but at least they're not that predominant. Again, with the further maturing, the perceptions might come into the foreground. So then they are. You know, uh, uh, predominant, and uh, with this suddenly, uh, then uh, the aggregate of uh, perceptions is suddenly uh, at suddenly uh, work or is suddenly uh, being experienced. This then might be uh, followed uh, by a period when a retreatant mostly experiences intentions, or the intentions come uh, to uh, the foreground. So. Uh, then we would have a case of uh, um, the aggregate of volitional formations um, being predominant. And then finally, consciousness itself might, uh, uh, or some understanding of certain consciousness, uh, might uh, uh, arise and come into uh, the foreground. Now, 
at first one might take volitions or intentions to be be well or to follow our will to occur based on our will our intentions but as we observe really carefully we find that these intentions arise owing to certain circumstances and then with this we understand it's not I intend to do or I desire to do this or that but rather it's just an intention that arises and then a certain action will follow. So with this then comes to some extent a disidentification from, uh, from volitions or intentions. Now, this contemplation of the aggregates, the five aggregates, um, carries a very wide potential. Namely, um, if one engages in it, then it could, in the best case, even lead to realization of the path of Fatna Arahan Satnaship. So, in other words, one then becomes a holy one with all mental defilements eradicated from the stream of Fatna consciousness. And it was while the Buddha was giving a Dhamma talk to the five ascetics on the four noble truths and seeing the five aggregates as impermanent, as unsatisfactory and so on, that they then gained the Dhamma and certainly gained certainly arahanship. Now, this certainly then brings us to near the end of our discourse for today. Allow me to conclude. May a meticulous and certainly also profound investigation of the five aggregates bring about more and more detachment, may this further bring about dispassion, and ultimately may it lead all of us to the realization of the Dhamma during this retreat or some retreat in the near future. And this is it for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.